um, I'm divorced. <laughs> and uh, that, I did not think you were going to open with that. <laughs> yeah, why not? But I'm not the only one with an ex, right? Yes, Peter's not the first person I've ever dated. <laughs> yeah, so we both have exes. I used to hear from mine often, but being in recovery has <laughs> changed put that, that in the end. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, mine talks to the kids, uh, but they both messaged at the exact same time yeah. the other day. Yeah, they did. Possibly within the hour. Yeah, it was within the hour. They they showed up. They populated. And um, text us about something that we had not been aware of. Yeah. Apparently has been circulating in toxic media cycles. Oh, yeah. There's some toxic media cycles. A lot of media toxicity that Peter and I were not even aware of. Uh, You know, supposedly I can't dissociate from toxic media cycles. But as it turns out, I'm uh, barely aware of them. And and this has to do with our our friend and former podcast. Yeah, a uh, co-host for Peter. There's been a take going around, and I'm kind of utterly shocked that a both of our exes texted us over this, and b uh, I sat down at the computer and the Discord is talking about it, and Fox and Alex are texting us about it, and I'm like, I thought it was me who is distracting the former podcast from uh, creating entertaining and educational content. Because I couldn't dissociate from the toxic media cycles. But I'm the one that's being sucked in. Uh, yeah. It was about narcissism. Because as you may or may not know, we live in a culture of narcissism, according to one Lash. Once you read Lash, by the way, Marx no longer applies. <laughs> and uh, gender. There are two genders. <laughs> yeah, there's two genders. Both of them are Joe Rogan. <laughs> the thing that was said was dumb. The tweet was about how leftists are just jealous of Joe Rogan, uh, who is just a a natural example of masculinity, who goes to the gym for three hours a day in order to maintain that. (laughs) Effortless masculinity spending one eighth of Of each day day at the gym. (laughs) The rest of it preparing chicken breasts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, And here's the thing. I'm not here to shit on Joe Rogan. Fucking, I, I think that Joe Rogan actually is in great shape and good for him. I'm not after Joe Rogan for for his shape or even his political beliefs, for that matter. I think yeah, that it's OK. Really. We'll, but, we'll talk more on that. But here's the reason why I why I care about this. I don't know why it's so hard to just fucking make a systemic analysis. No, it's got to be about narcissism. It, no, you're right. You're right. It's got to be about narcissism. Fine, I'll steal Jack Saints thing. He blames Carl Jung for this. Yeah. Because I I liked his tweet without realizing it was him. And I was like, fuck. He's caught up in toxic media cycles. Oh, yeah. Too. No, and here's the thing. If you want to talk about natural expressions of masculinity, I certainly put out some some stuff that is is masculine and some some stuff that's feminine, but it's all natural. I certainly <laughs> it's don't have all, it's all natural. I certainly don't have to go into the gym for this. But like A, like if we're accusing people of narcissism by her logic. Let's say for the sake of argument. Let's say for the sake of argument that leftist men are actually narcissistic about Joe Rogan. If we're going to be making like really shallow criticisms, like it's narcissistic to concentrate on Joe Rogan's looks and be jealous about it. Isn't it a little narcissistic to work on your looks for one eighth of your day? 
I'm not saying that I think that. I don't think that specifically. I think that it's very good to be in shape. I think that what Joe Rogan does, fuck yes. The guy's 54 and he looks like that. Fuck yeah. Well He's done. 54. He is 54 years old. Now, here's what I would suggest. The problem with leftist men isn't actually that they're all narcissists. I would suggest that there is an ideology in which they see the symbolism of masculinity and have been trained to react a certain way to it. I would agree. And to focus that onto an individual like Joe Rogan instead of marketing. What I'm saying is that ultimately there is something called hegemonic ideology, which is seeded by an owning slash ruling class. And if you really wanted to make a criticism about any of this, that's where you start. If you want to talk about, you know, HR press releases about why somebody left or was booted from your podcast, and you say that they're a distraction from your ability to create entertaining and educational content, when you say that they can't disengage from toxic media circles, uh, maybe think about the fact that the only time that person thinks about you, hears about you, or deals with you in any way is uh, whenever your toxic media cycles seem to be the subject of everyone's fucking discussion. Our exes fucking texted us. <laughs> so anyway, I, I hope that you're interested in um, a good podcast. So tighten your buttholes. It's time for Pact. That was a good one. That one had, had some inertia. Uh, I'm the P, Peter Coffin, the lovely Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. Right here is the ACD. Together, we're packed. Don't miss an episode. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Leave us a glowing review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever weird thing that you use. Uh, we are a five-star podcast. We are still at uh, 4.6, so just remember yeah, that. Yeah, we checked it. We're at 4.6. And uh, you guys call need... in that we talked about. I, I'm not a, a 4.6 Last week, podcast. Uh, we called the audience in. You guys really need to do the work. Hashtag do better. The emotional labor. Go on to Spotify. We're a five-star podcast. Yeah. Join our Discord. We hang out there all the time. We chat. We do some other fun stuff. You can access by becoming a patron. Like movie nights, uh, the upcoming. We're still figuring out the logistics of reading group because, frankly, it's very hard to find time to do any of these things. Yeah, I, there is also exclusive content, uh, stuff you see first before anyone else, and some stuff that no one else sees. Um, nothing too risque, though. Or, I don't know. Sometimes I post pictures in my comfy. Yeah, that's some that's some hot shit there. Um, it's not. I look like a cryptid. That, <laughs> that's the cryptid. So help us keep the lights on by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash packedpod. We've got fantastic packed merch that's available as well. Tell your friends. We rely so big on word of mouth. Available books, custom reality, and you. It's about how reality is all fucked up. And uh, I figured out how. Cancel culture, mob justice, or a society of subscriptions. Buy the books. ACD edited the recent ones, so way less typos than custom reality in you. I got the typo version. I went through and fixed the typos. That's true. I got it before you did that. And I, I'm an academic, so I thought, oh, there's probably like some meaning to this. Yeah. And it's really just like, oh, this person is a dumbass. A, dumbass. <laughs> a rube. 
has great insights, but holy shit, that's like grade two. <laughs> What's going on here? Anyway, we stream 7 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, Gawker. <laughs> My favorite publication. Gawker's a website. Was a $105 million company when 2011, when it destroyed my life. Basically, it's a machine that for most of its life ate up normal people and spit them back out as a commodified image for everybody to feel very smart for disliking. That's essentially the racket they were running. They, from time to time, you know, get a celebrity. They, uh, a year after they got me, they got Louis C.K. Um, everybody ignored oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, in 2012, Louis C.K., uh, the first expose on him was published. Then uh, nobody took it seriously because it was Gawker, uh, because people were like, all Gawker does is just try to ruin people. And it was like, well, it's good that you guys all realize that a year after it fucked me up. <laughs> anyway, Gawker went out of business because they did it to Hulk Hogan, and uh, he sued them and won because, A, they actually do horrible things. And B, uh, Peter Thiel was funding the lawsuit. So he had very good lawyers. Peter Thiel wanted to destroy Gawker because uh, they outed him as gay several years earlier. Oh. Really a horseshit thing to do. Like if you're not yeah, out. right. Anyway, long story short, they went out of business. Somebody else bought them. And they were like, we're not going to do the same thing that Gawker used to do. Okay? Like we're going to be a more respectable outlet. So- Last Friday, the 11th, uh, they put this out. Jon Stewart expends final shred of goodwill defending Joe Rogan. Revving the cancel machine right back up. Not to say that Jon Stewart is a normal person. He is a celebrity. Sure. They, they are still. They're finding people who have done perceived wrongs in, toward, in order to mine clout and social capital. on Right. And, and perceived wrongs that are embedded within an intensely polarized outrage culture where yes. regardless of what side an individual is on, but especially the one that Gonker is reporting from uh, can feel incredibly sanctimonious and right and special. And it's a culture that they helped create. They are, like I said, um, at their peak, we're worth over a hundred million dollars. We're a huge outlet that were read by tons of people and ate up, not just celebrities, but lots of regular people who did something that was perceived as outside of social norms. Cancel culture, mob justice, or a society of subscriptions. Just want to remind everybody, this was the number one new release in censorship on uh, the Kindle store. This is a very short article, but the, the subtitle is the former late night star says he will never give up on engagement. Hmm. <laughs> like. Doesn't that look like a hmm. lunatic, like condemning someone for saying like they're not going to give up on trying to like to talk to truth other people? Yeah. If for people who they perceive to be incorrect too. Yeah. Like, no, no. The implication of that, of being upset with somebody who wants to engage is to let somebody just harbor the beliefs that are wrong and, and deteriorate in this innate evil that they deserve for having well, yeah, the wrong I mean, opinion. I mean, their their genetic makeup led them to make that decision. Right. And therefore, I'm sorry, but there's no chance that they're ever going to be any different. Even if they say they're different, they're not really different. 
If there's one thing rich people don't know how to do, it's disappear gracefully. Who's a greater example of this than Jon Stewart, who ended his run at The Daily Show in 2015 with all the goodwill in the world? Fun fact, Louis C.K. was his final guest. It's not that fun of a fact. No, it's really not that fun. Don't say fun fun fact and then give me some boring shit like that. But you can see what Gawker's going for here, right? Yeah. They're like, he had Louis C.K. on his show, so well, yeah, you know he's bad. Olivia Craig, the author of this, is is establishing her moral superiority over Jon Stewart, who is the target of her article. She's establishing dominance. Yeah. My father was trying to establish dominance, and that's the only reason he was in his butt. Or, what? Are you ta- why are you focused well, on that? It's about power. We have our guy now. I feel like we should make that known that it's about power. Let's not make any of it known. He ended The Daily Show in 2015 with all the goodwill in the world and is now... Ugh, hosting a podcast where he spent the last two weeks trying to get his audience to engage with Joe Rogan. I think that it's funny that up front, when they mention his podcast, they don't mention that it's a companion to his Apple TV Plus show, which is one of the largest platforms in the world. Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus are like your biggest built-in audiences possible at the moment. Right. Last week on The Problem with Jon Stewart, Stewart said the fact that Neil Young pulled his music off Spotify in protest of star podcaster Joe Rogan's advancement of COVID misinformation was, quote, a mistake. You have to engage. Like, how do you not engage with people? The whole point of engagement is hopefully clarification. It might be a fool's errand, but I'll never give up on engagement, the comedian said on the podcast, which is an accompaniment to his Apple TV Plus show. Right on, brother. See, They front-loaded where they were like, it's just a podcast. That's what this guy does now. And then after you've gotten a little into the article, it's a companion show to a show that's on one of the biggest platforms out there right now. Again, I I love that, like, they're (laughs) quoting this man saying, this fucking dumbass wants to clarify people's opinions so that we can all come to a conclusion together. Or for that matter, just know what everybody thinks. Yeah. What a piece of fucking trash. This this guy wants to hear what people have to say. Fuck him. <laughs> wants to hear what people have to say and challenge it if it's yeah. something that he perceives to be an injustice. I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have uh, privately amongst my friends and also in occasional newspapers and television shows <laughs> mentioned uh, this show as being uh, uh, bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to, I felt that that wasn't fair and I should come here and, and tell you that I don't, it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say, wait, wait, I just, let me, here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> this week, Stewart continued talking about Rogan, this time making a confusing comparison between his own denouncement of the Iraq war and Rogan telling young people not to get vaccinated. One, I don't think that's what Joe Rogan said. No, it's definitely a distortion of what Joe Rogan said. I don't necessarily agree with what he did say, which was that there's not a, a major reason for a young person to get vaccinated as compo- right. as compared to... Which is horseshit. But yeah. like... Again, he, he's not a medical professional. And he's also coming from a not incorrect assertion that the older you are, 
the, the more worst... important it is for yeah. you to. Right. And he said specifically old people should get vaccinated and sick people should get vaccinated. People with various health conditions should get vaccinated. If you're young and healthy, it maybe doesn't matter as much is basically what he said. Right. And I disagree with that. Get vaccinated. It's a good idea. But it, it doesn't even fucking matter. By the way, this comparison is not confusing at all. Stuart, in this podcast that we will cover, describes a situation where he was promoting information about the Iraq war that the mainstream media would render conspiratorial and not true. And just the, the, the mainstream media establishment would say, no, John Stewart's full of shit. That's uh, misinformation. We're, we're not doing all this shit in Iraq, whatever. And that turned out to be completely false. And so in that situation, John Stewart appropriately identifies the New York Times as disseminating misinformation and disinformation regarding the Middle East. And he uses that to describe a, a fear or anxiety that he has surrounding Joe Rogan immediately being like, ah, like you got to get taken off this platform because he's saying something that contradicts the general consensus of what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And especially in science, right? Yeah. Because in, in something like a, a social political context, like the Middle East, they knew what was happening. Yeah. The, that information was available and there. And they were hiding it. And they were hiding it and contradicting that made you into a conspiratorial nut job when you were saying things that were known to be facts. Science, I even I think, even affords more flexibility because something might be known to be the truth at a time. But as science progresses, it might be evidence to turn out to be something else. Absolutely. And, and so there, there's I mean, we've of, seen plenty of that over the course of COVID. Right. And, and so there's even more like if you're saying something that contrasts with the current state of the literature and a completely rapidly developing situation over the past two years, like day by day changes to say that that's malicious, like disgusting spread of missing disinformation. We got to get rid of this man with this podcast. Yeah, it's just fucking crazy. Couldn't I have gone down and fallen down this if a Viacom or Comedy Central had wanted to censor me? Or had wanted to take me off. Look, I'm not on a platform. Nobody is, he said. But my point is, these are shifting sands. And I think I get concerned with, well, who gets to decide? Yes. Who that this is them quoting John Stewart. Yeah. Who gets to decide? That, again, this is them saying something that is completely reasonable, even admirable. Yeah. John Stewart to point out that ruling class ideology embeds itself within ma mainstream media and that the people that decide this. Well, he doesn't say it explicitly. Are the owners. Are the owners. John Stewart right here, whether he knows it or not, or he's intentionally not framing it this way, he's asking the question of class. Right. He's saying who owns, who gets to decide, and does that benefit me as an individual living in this society, or does it benefit them? Right. Um, I guess Joe Rogan is John Stewart, and that he is also currently airing views that are different from those published in the New York Times. Only in Rogan's case, the views at hand are scientifically disproven falsehoods rather than skepticism about the existence of weapons of mass destruction. Yep. In an analogy, one thing is another thing. So let's talk about uh, the published information about weapons of mass destruction at the time. 
It was proven, according to all official sources, that there were weapons of mass destruction. We had weapons inspectors in Iraq that were reporting back to the United States saying there were weapons of mass destruction. Is that not like the equivalent of scientifically proven in this situation? Sure. I mean, it's as close to the same thing as can be. Right. And also, she doesn't identify which scientifically disproven falsehoods. Um, Also, by the way... Anybody saying the word disproven is not a scientist. True. He doesn't understand how science works. There's a, a, an amalgam of evidence that supports the, the efficacy of vaccines. But I, I don't even think that was not a conversation at hand. in, no. in Joe Rogan's thing was not saying uh, that vaccines don't work. And that's when I otherwise he wouldn't be saying for old people to get them. Right. Um, Stewart's guest misinformation researcher Joan Donovan did not have time to respond directly to the comparison. Uh, that's not true. She was able to talk however she wanted. Yes. Really steered the conversation however yeah, she, she wanted She was to. the one directing the conversation. Yeah, if, if she, thousand percent. If she had wanted to talk about uh, that comparison, she could have. She would have. Um, as the conversation moved on to the general importance of engagement with opinions different from one's own, perhaps Stewart's next guest can be a philosopher specializing in false equivalents. Aha, Typical Gawker fashion in which we discredit absolutely everything with a quick, snappy, a little snarky piece of shit asshole quip. She's so smart, Olivia Craighead. Um, After pretty much sitting out the Trump presidency before mounting his comeback, Stewart seems to still be getting used to the ways the media ecosystem has changed in the last four years. Perhaps he'll channel his learnings into an allegorical movie about a man who is cursed with being the only person capable of asking a question. Of course, if it's like his previous one, no one will see it. During its two-week run at your local art house, Gawker is still run by human shit. And as we get into this actual interview between Jon Stewart and Dr. Joan Donovan, we'll see how ridiculous it is, it to, is. to try to cancel Jon Stewart for having this conversation. Yeah, it's absurd. It's fucking crazy. He gives this woman so much leeway, too. Yeah. He's clearly so committed to engagement that... That he's not calling this woman on her shit, effectively. Yes, exactly. Anyway, so uh, the podcast in question, the second one, we were actually going to do an episode on the first one. We had talked about it earlier in the week, uh, last week. And we were saying, you know, this Joe Rogan thing doesn't seem to be going away. It might be good to do an episode. And then we saw that PragerU thing last week, and we were like, actually, you know what? This is a very good opportunity for us to expand on all of our main points while shitting on both PragerU and Twitter the left. Who shit on PragerU, yeah. <laughs> this podcast went up on Thursday. Uh, it's Jon Stewart addressing the controversy he had caused by saying, uh, maybe we shouldn't actually just remove all incorrect information. Maybe we should allow people to have conversations with people who aren't correct. Maybe we should actually engage with things, uh, including Joe Rogan, which to talk about some of the response that he got from the first one, he said, we're talking about Spotify and, and Joe Rogan and some other things. And I, and I had some comments on it. I thought, well, geez, I, I'm always someone who prefers engagement and generally the, the commentary uh, back from it, I thought was very measured coming my way. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst the uh, fuck you, I'm done with you, Stuart. Uh, I'll never forgive you for X, Y, Z. Uh, you're off the rails, old man. Go, go away. 
I thought there was some interesting stuff, if you sifted through it, that, that was constructive. And I think some people made the point that economic pressure is also just another pressure point that you can apply to, to misinformation. Economic pressure. Like, yeah, all these people canceling Spotify yeah, no subscriptions are, are so critically exerting economic pressure. Everybody doing their, their press release tweets. So did everybody see all those fucking press releases that everybody tweeted out? Every normal fucking... Actually, normal is the wrong word. Um, every liberal <laughs> tweeted out a press release about how they they really wish that things were different, but they just can't continue to support Spotify. Did you know Spotify has over 360 million users? Over 180 million of them are paid. Yeah, sorry, but like you discontinuing your 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 Spotify family plan isn't going to bother them. The subscription shall be canceled first in a trot. <laughs> then it will develop into a canter. Then into a gracious gallop. <laughs> so John Stewart introduces Dr. Joan Donovan, the research director and director of technology and social change project at the Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center. So anyway, she introduces herself, really happy to be on a national platform, soaking up the attention. Establishes herself as cool um, by saying oh, yeah. the, the ivory tower is also where knowledge goes to die. Yeah. Knowing what you know of how the internet is where nuance goes to die. Yes, and the ivory tower is also where knowledge goes to die. So oh, we are boy, very oh, much... Nicely I mean, done, Professor. Yeah. All right. Well... How do you do, fellow kids? Psych! That's the wrong number. Oh! Wow, guys. Oh, my God. I forgot to tell you before I came in to do this podcast. I am cool as shit. I'm a cool academic like, who researches misinformation. Yeah, nothing God. cooler than that. I know what you've heard about academics, but I'm cool and funny. So, so, John so that <laughs> you got into it before me. So John Stewart asks this woman, this expert in misinformation and the context of social justice in the Internet over the past decade, what did he do correctly and incorrectly in prioritizing engagement as mm -hmm. an ability to facilitate discussion and, and discourse and, and to identify the, the closest to the truth that we have? And she starts talking about the distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. When we talk about misinformation in this field, we really are talking about information that is shared where people don't know its veracity or its accuracy. So mm -hmm. Joe Rogan really falls into the misinformation camp of someone who's just asking questions, has some ideas, he wants mm -hmm. to hear from a range of different people. He's just this guy, he has people on, he has some questions. He, he's very differential. No hair. No hair. Giant fucking head. Smooth. Um, <laughs> really just a naturally masculine person. Yeah, maybe the, the effortless <laughs> masculinity. Just effortlessly masculine. Leftists are all jealous of him. Uh, but the misinformation is never error corrective, right? Like a, a good editorial magazine or even a newspaper is going to have a way to, to do corrections that the next day mm -hmm. you're going to hear, hey, you know, we printed this thing and it was totally wrong. 
Uh, but the internet has really facilitated this flow of information where uh, error correction just never happens. But then in, in putting Joe Rogan in that misinformation category, we start talking about accountability. Yeah. Who is responsible? We can't talk about anything anymore without talking about accountability. Uh, there's no faultless issue. There's no Everything issue. Everything is blamed on somebody. And it's not on the ruling class. It's not on the economic base. It's not on the relations of production. It's any individual we can find that is closest to the proximity of the center of this issue. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, their that's fucking such fault. That's a good way of putting it, too. So, yeah, accountability. We start talking that shit. But that's the, like, my uncle said it on Facebook kind of excuse, right? He's spreading this information. <laughs> right, right, right. What changes it for someone like Rogan is... It's his brand. It's controversy is his brand. Controversial conversations right. is what Spotify paid $100 million for. Dr. Donovan brings up the point of, is this something that Joe Rogan should be held responsible for, knowing where this is going to go? Mm -hmm. Or is it Spotify who wants all the benefits of being a platform rather than a publisher? But being a platform is very specific. To call yourself a platform actually means a very specific thing where mm -hmm. Spotify wants all the benefits of being called a platform where there's a lot of user generated content, which creates a lot of chaos and opportunities for disinformation right. and misinformation. But they really knew what they were getting. All of these problems were there when Rogan was primarily using YouTube as right. a means to uh, gather an audience. She doesn't get into that, but Peter can tell you about those distinctions. So those distinctions come from Section 230, which uh, Destiny, <laughs> a couple months ago, I was at the Better Discourse event in Dallas-Fort Worth, had a great time, met a lot of people, a lot of right-wingers that were very receptive to uh, what a communist had to fucking say, oddly enough. It's almost like if you go and talk to people like they're human beings, they listen to you and you can change. I had changed a bunch of people's minds on nuclear power that day. A, just a shitload of people. Anyway, so Destiny was there too and was debating about platforms and... Uh, this 26-word clause. Platforms and, <laughs> platforms and publishers. And uh, so this is in reference to a law called Section 230. It absolves internet service providers of various liabilities that its users might accrue because they're a service provider and not a publisher, meaning uh, they are a platform or a provider. A publisher is a, a, an entity that curates content and pushes it out to a larger distribution. And there's a lot of leeway given to these large services like YouTube, Spotify, Facebook, all this because if they were to be held liable for the users on their platforms, they would be they'd be accruing liabilities like crazy, and it would be very difficult to conduct business. Now, if you stringently enforced this law, uh, which Destiny, having only read Wikipedia, <laughs> believed it to be a 26-word law. 230 is like, it's like Ariel. 27 words. What do you mean? It doesn't tell you in there what it means to be a publisher. All right. He literally just read it. Yeah. It was not 26 words. Uh, that was the quote on Wikipedia. It was 26 words of the um, four-page law. It dichotomizes platform and publisher using slightly different terminology, but there's a definition section. The law dichotomizes itself by content provider or access provider. Uh, 
a platform would be an access provider while a publisher would be a content provider. Uh, that's very obviously what it pertains to if you read it. <laughs> uh, but that's what happens when you're a streamer. Uh, you tend to just read Wikipedia and then think that you're a fucking expert. Anyway, the good Dr. Donovan uh, waxes on caring about this. <laughs> uh, not really. Kind of. Brings it up a couple of times. Doesn't really... Define what it is for it. the audience. Um, she thinks that uh, the discussion, however, is very important and that we have to talk about the difference between a platform and a publisher, even though she doesn't. Well, <laughs> we have to talk about that because it dictates who is accountable in this. Yes, yes. Because if you're a platform, what you are supposedly is a neutral service provider. You simply are a conduit for a user to upload or access content. Whatever they want. And exactly. you're not responsible you're not for responsible what they say. You're not responsible for it. It's it's like the highway. Gonna ride it all night long. If somebody's on the highway and does something reckless and stupid, it's their fucking fault. They're gonna be the one that's liable. Like if you ride on the wrong side of the road and go head on and kill somebody, that's your fucking fault. It's not the highway maker's fault. I'm the highway man. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to get to... I'm the highway man. Okay, good to know. Well, so you see... I'm the highway man. Now, a publisher is not a service provider. They're not like a telephone line. They're like a television channel. They're curating content. They're making choices as to what they want to push. They're promoting it. They're aggregating. They're curating. Now, what is an algorithm? Is it a thing that curates your experience and shows you specific content, which... uh benefits the platform in that it creates engagement and keeps you on the platform? Does it specifically choose content uh, based on criteria that are put forward by the people who own the algorithm? Uh, isn't that a publisher? If we're going by that, then the people who are liable for everything, including everything that Joe Rogan says, is Spotify. And I agree with that. Yeah. This is a substantial conversation that has to do with the laws and how they apply in the world as it is today, which Dr. Donovan doesn't bother with. Right. But a lot of this podcast interview ends up, despite that conversation about Spotify's culpability in this, talks about the individualization of responsibility on Joe Rogan. And that is where John Stewart brings up this equivalence between him talking about the prosecution of the Iraq war. Where I, where I run into trouble is the thing you just said. You talked about they want the benefit, but they don't want the accountability. And you mentioned weapons of mass destruction. And it reminded me like the New York Times was a giant purveyor of misinformation and disinformation. I don't know that the Times was purposeful. And that's as vaunted a media organization as you can find, but there was no accountability for them. And I think where I get nervous is in the run-up to the Iraq war and in the prosecution of the Iraq war, I was very vocal about that. But the mainstream view, the New York Times was they have weapons of mass destruction. They have these tubes that can only be used for nuclear war. Uh, Saddam Hussein is this, he's that. Couldn't I have gone down if, if Viacom or Comedy Central had wanted to censor me 
or had wanted to take me off the platform. Look, I'm not owed a platform. Nobody is. So it's not, it's not a First Amendment issue. It's not any of that. But my point is, this is a sh these are shifting sands. And I get concerned with, well, who gets to decide what that, I mean, we, in the Iraq war, I was on the side of what you would think on the mainstream is misinformation. I was promoting what they would call misinformation, but it turned out to be right years later. And the establishment media was wrong. And not only were they wrong, you could make the case that they enabled a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people and never paid a price for it and never had accountability. And just having an ombudsman print a retraction to me is an accountability. So it's very easy to attack Rogan. And I'm not saying that that's not your right and, and that there aren't things there to talk about. But what I'm saying is let's be careful because the sands can shift. He he compares himself in the Iraq war situation to that and that both individuals are con contradicting the mainstream narrative. And it's possible that in this situation, if Joe Rogan is responsible for this, what if he is, you know, just contradicting what we think is true now? And then he ends up being right later or the person that he's talking to, Dr. Robert Malone, for example. Uh, and if that happens. Who is deciding when that happens? Who, who's, who's deciding what is correct? Wait, who, who's deciding what is correct at any given time? And that's a concern that he really has. We're talking to Dr. Uh, Donovan, uh, which she doesn't answer. No. At all. And it doesn't even try. In fact, tries to not answer it. Yeah. Uh, but talks talks more about her expertise. So in, in the time of the Internet, we don't have the same filtering of information that we did in social, historical, or scientific topics because we don't have fucking librarians filtering the internet. Yeah. That's that's what she talks about. People are in a new information uh, ecosystem and they're mm -hmm. trying their best. But that's the thing about these these platforms over the years yeah. is that we've, in, we've asked no accountability from them. They're right. not built by librarians who are actual stewards of information. And so it's been ta it's taken us a long time, uh, at least the last decade, to get into the moment where we ask more from these companies. We're asking, we want access to the truth. We want it to come up first. We want uh, more public interest content. And so someone like Rogan really straddles the line because he reaches so many people and he described it as a juggernaut. It's out of his control now. But Really, it's not. It is in his control. It's well within Spotify's control. And, and so she she completely avoids addressing John Stewart's question about the New York Times during the Iraq War spreading mis and disinformation. Mm -hmm. What I was saying is, I'm generally more concerned about the algorithm than I am about the individual. Because if the algorithm, you know, you assume that there's a gatekeeper. Uh, it's sort of like the news. When it's in the New York Times, you assume that there is a gatekeeper there that has vetted this. But in reality, our modern media is kind of a, an information laundering system where where the information comes from gets laundered through the aggregation process. And so gossip and rumor become truth and fact, become canon 
very quickly. And she completely ignores it. Well, this is interesting because if you think about the history of the Internet, the early websites that were really popular, Mm -hmm. Perez Hilton, right? People were here for gossip (laughs) and rumor. They weren't here for the truth. And news was actually really slow to get online. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, it's part of the infrastructure of the internet itself. So to be in this moment where we're demanding more truth means that uh, these platforms are becoming institutions, right? Like the New York Times in a way where people are asking them to be more accountable to the audiences that they claim to serve. People used to want gossip and things were curated towards that. Now people want the truth and things are curated towards she doesn't say this, but to individuals' custom realities. Yes. What she attributes to, you know, the... The mass amount of information that a, an individual can disseminate on their own. Right. Which uh, is not the right thing to, to attribute it to. Right. The other thing is, is he asked specifically about the New York Times and their culpability in, frankly, a, a, a very specific situation. Nothing. Where they disseminated misinformation and it helped cause hundreds of thousands of deaths in the Iraq war. Fuck yeah, it did. You betcha. And uh, so she goes, well, this is interesting because in the early history of the internet, which like, no, no, the question was not about the early history of the internet. <laughs> it was about the fucking New York Times spreading lies. So she moves on from that and says, well, you know what? There's a labor dispute having to do with this. Yeah, yeah. He's like, so let's talk about the New York Times. She's like, no, it's internet history. And it's like, yeah, but the New York Times, can we talk about that? And she's like, well, the Spotify thing, it's a labor dispute. I'm an academic who knows about the working class. You know, I'm something of a proletarian myself. (laughs) (laughs) And the Neil Young part of this is really interesting because tied up within it and very little is talked about is a labor dispute about... Rogan getting $100 million and uh, musicians getting, you know, a penny for 350 plays. Oh, wow. And so within Neil Young, So there's also uh, an economic aspect twist. to this that's very different. Exactly. And, and, and a lot of it gets brought up, you know, in the moment where Neil Young just is like a catalyst for a bunch of different grievances that have been happening in the background, particularly about Rogan, but then also about Spotify having to stand on its two feet and say, this is what we are. There's a labor dispute, though. The thing is, is that Joe Rogan got paid $100 million to do his podcast on Spotify, whereas most musical artists gets paid a penny for 350 plays, which like I've seen a lot of people attempt to say that this whole issue is about that. And like, there's all these artists that are taking their 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 music off of Spotify, not just because of Joe Rogan's misinformation, but they're trying to make a point about how much they get paid on platform. There's a few people who have said things like this, a few artists, a few commentators. And I just want to say, like, that's so stupid. Right. Because what they are saying, you know, the the labor dispute thing didn't really matter. We we were fine and completely complacent. In uh, receiving the the shitty payoff that that we got from being on Spotify, um, what really matters is the the Joe Rogan thing, a- and we're taking ourselves off of that. It didn't matter before Joe Rogan, but now it matters it for matters, some reason. It matters now for some reason because this is an opportunity. All these people, by the way, I've never fucking heard of, and so this is their opportunity to 
care about workers and yeah. and people and artists and whatever. Um, but it's really about the Joe Rogan thing because this is a way that I can get my name out there. Exactly. This incredibly eruptive culture. Or Well, they see that this Joe Rogan thing is being talked about and it's still being talked about weeks later. And all of these fucking people have managed to attach their names to it. Like India Ari, who I have not heard of or thought about in at least seven years. James Blunt. Yeah, James Blunt. <laughs> God bless this man. He said, either Spotify takes Joe Rogan off their platform or God damn it, I'm going to be making new music and putting it on their platform. <laughs> we love self-aware comedy. It's good. So anyway, the, these are individuals, individual artists who are, uh, of course, in the economic system that we're incentivized, capitalizing on this issue so that they can get their name out. And here's the thing. They say, well, these are connected issues. They're attempting to use this big culture war issue to bring the light down onto how bad Spotify is for artists. And, and it's almost like, using interconnected as like a buzzword. Yeah. Like, yeah. yes, all of these things are connected to they almost like they don't say it explicitly, but like to corporations and capital, man. Yeah. Well, they know that AOC is popular. Yeah. So, Makes them look anti-establishment to some extent. Right. The nuance goes to die in the ivory tower. Hmm. But anyway, the way that the media frames issues, A, it's never going to talk about the economic part of the issue. No. Never. B, while these things are connected in terms of the material base in a dialectical sense, in terms of the framing of how they are put out there by mainstream media, it is a fully metaphysical framework. And then once this discourse dies down... With Joe Rogan, so does the labor thing. Yeah. Oh, that was just a thing that was brought up and talked about when the Joe Rogan thing happened. We don't fucking care about that anymore. Well, yeah. Just like we didn't care about it before the Joe Rogan thing. The instant Joe Rogan is resolved, the labor dispute will be resolved as well in terms of the mainstream conversation. Because again, mainstream media doesn't give a flying fuck about what artists make on Spotify. Well, yeah, and let's also talk about how offended Neil Young is by misinformation. However, he rode the GMO thing as long as he possibly could seven or eight years ago. See, I didn't know anything about this because I don't know who the fuck he is. <laughs> Neil Young uh, pandered to the Green Party on, um, even though he did not directly uh, go anti-vax, in doing the um, scaremongering over GMOs, and allowing that misrepresentation of what they actually are, rather than the problem of Monsanto being a company that uh, creates proprietary seeds and the pesticide that's used on them, rather than that monopoly that they create being the problem, instead saying that just GMOs are the problem, that genetic modification is somehow going to uh, destroy your brain. It's going to cause autism. Like there was a long stretch where GMOs were causing autism for people. And, and he rode that. He rode that wave as long as he fucking could until it was so fucking debunked, uh, that he had to shut the fuck up or he was going to look like well, what so he's claiming because... he's offended over Joe Rogan looks like now. Right. If, if we're talking about labor disputes, do you want to know where he went when he took his music off Spotify? Amazon Music. He signed an exclusivity agreement with Amazon Music because, you know, Amazon, they're a much better company than Spotify, right? Also, by the way, uh, whether you listen to music on Amazon Music or Spotify doesn't matter. However, if you have a catalog 
uh, that these services uh, regard as sought after, then you actually do have some power to leverage against these large fucking companies. Uh, and he leveraged it in terms of getting himself a lot of attention, a lot of publicity, and a nice little payout from Amazon. Grassroots, man. Fuck Neil Young is what I'm saying. And also fuck all of the other people who I don't know who they are, but they've managed to use this to insert their names into the national zeitgeist. Fuck them, too. Anyway, would you say it's unclear Dr. Donovan's stance on whether it's Joe Rogan's responsibility or Spotify's responsibility? She's kind of sitting on the fence. She can't really decide. She qualifies each one, which I, I think is fine for her to do. That's yeah, fine. You know, Joe Rogan maybe has some intellectual responsibility here in the type of work that he does. Uh, Spotify is also a corporation that is maximizing profit and, and doesn't want the responsibilities of being a publisher. John Stewart asks for solutions. What we need to do is actually stem the flow and the tide of uh, uh, the damage that an individ individual or small groups of people can do. Uh, and this is where the problem of platforming really comes in because mm -hmm. if you are able to distribute your information to millions and millions of people and you have no responsibility to what the aftermath is, the true costs are then paid by journalists that have to debunk it. The true costs are paid by uh, academics that have to research it. And then down the line, uh, anybody who might be harmed by believing, you know, that you can treat COVID with some kind of bleach or light therapy. And so what's important is that we think about platforming differently in terms of the scale. And one of the things that I've really advocated for is that we, we reduce the scale and the speed by which information travels so as to be able to do as, as what you're suggesting is to have some kind of uh, crowdsourced intervention or not to let information um, scale to a huge amount of people before we can actually have any evidence that it's true or false. So it's bad that academics have to do research and that journalists have to do journalism. So we actually have to do degrowth with all information. Yeah. <laughs> what in the fuck take is that? Yeah, no, it just comes out of nowhere too. It's a complete non-solution, like an unrealistic one too. And then Jon Stewart is kind of like, yeah, okay. Uh, should we not engage with people, though? It's It has these real-world effects. The the wires to the weeds is an important... So, in terms of platforming, is engagement, in your mind, a fool's errand? Engage... Do you, do you recommend pulling back, or do you recommend engagement? Because I, I, I still believe in engagement. Like, I've taught... I mean, damn, I had Donald Rumsfeld on my show. Like, how do you learn nuance without engagement? And how do you get understanding without nuance? And I guess that's my fear, is that we lose that. Like, the thing that he's very concerned about, the implication in needing to deplatform anyone who is ever incorrect publicly means anybody who makes a claim that is outside of a mainstream narrative um, is at the mercy of those who create the mainstream narrative. This is like the opposite of what knowledge pursuit is. And I say this as a scientist. I say this as a Marxist. Like, I, I just think that's fucking ridiculous. Well, I mean, to take Jon Stewart's example here, he mentions The Simpsons. He's Let's say you're The Simpsons, right? 
Mm-hmm. All of the Simpsons. All of the Simpsons. You're, you're Lisa. Okay, I'm Bart, Lisa, Homer. though. I'm Lisa. All right. I'm Homer. You can be Homer. Okay. Yeah, I knew. I knew what was um, coming. You're on Fox. The same people that pay you pay Hannity. As an artist, what's your responsibility to the tube that you're? in and the company that you're on. And I, I struggle with that. Like, I don't know what you do with that. Like, do, do we now expect the Simpsons to say, we will no longer be a part of this company? Or like, how, how far do we go with that? And th- I think that that is an entirely valid question because it's the thing that Neil Young is doing and being rewarded with a ton of media coverage and praise. So that's very clearly being incentivized here. Yeah, it's not answered either. No, uh, it's ignored. Uh, the answer that Donovan gives is it's it's a big question right now. <laughs> it's it's a big question right now. And I think right. we're moving from culture wars to content wars in the sense that mm-hmm. uh, the way in which these fragmented, fringy opinions start mm-hmm. to bubble up and coalesce online makes it seem like there's a lot more people with the same ideas. We're moving from culture wars to content wars, which, by the way, fuck you. What does that even mean? That doesn't mean anything. Okay, so culture wars is content wars. Content is culture. Culture is content. You cannot, you can't avoid this correlation in a a situation which commodifies images of anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Chinese culture, for instance, is content and people get mad about it. Remember, my culture is not your dress. Now we're going to move on to our GMA cover story. It's a heated debate over a prom dress. See this young woman right here. She's being accused of cultural appropriation for wearing that Chinese inspired dress. Yeah, this is huge. Everybody has a strong opinion about this story. George, good morning. They feel like, oh, well, that's something that's genuine. That's something that's real. It shouldn't be content, but it is content. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good representation is an example of this. When you say, I want good representation, you're saying, I want them to make a good content commodity out of a culture. Absolutely. Um, Then Jay... Jordan, who is his co-host? Yeah. What Jay comes in with, I love. Mm-hmm. He's remained pretty much silent up until this point. Um, hasn't really said. He made a couple of jokes earlier. I think he wanted to see what the academic was Dr. saying. Dr. Donovan was monopolizing the conversation Yeah, so that's much. true. Dr. Donovan steered this whole thing. But she didn't have time. Despite the fact that people attempt constantly to get her to talk about something else. She's like, no, internet history. Yeah. Anyway. Jay Jordan comes in. Can I say something also about Please. that? There's there's one more thing that also kind of ties into the story and the narrative of that. For any other person, for any marginalized group, you don't have the privilege or even the space to not engage with people who might not have your best interest at heart. There was never a time when women, black people, or queer people were uh, were able to live in America and say, I don't want to engage. That is a, it is a new take on interactions and power dynamics, but it is also a very privileged take and I don't Mm -hmm. throw that word around all the time because it starts to like lose a lot of its meaning but I'm a queer black person from Mississippi I yes yes (laughs) how did you get past our hiring process the the fact of the matter that that Jay gets to is saying that engagement 
even if it's conflicting engagement, promotes a, a conversation that that achieves something closer to what is right or just or truth. I know we're talking about these uh, utopian, platonic, abstracted ideals, but it, it gets people learning what the other person has to say and coming to an understanding that is the most materially rooted in reality. Because it's based in relationships. He even goes as far to say is that relationships, as long as there's not the power dynamic of the boss and you. The way that people talk about not engaging with someone is they go, oh, I just would never even talk to them. And that's amazing. As long as that person isn't your boss, as long as that person doesn't provide you with housing, as long as that person doesn't provide you with an opportunity to make some money, and as long as that person isn't a gatekeeper for you to have access just on day-to-day things. Which is the closest to class analysis that this thing has gone. But the conclusion that he comes to from a relational perspective is to say, hey, fuck you, that's wrong, is engagement. And to take someone off a platform doesn't afford you to do that. It doesn't afford you to to disagree. And then they continue to think what they think. And then everybody's increasingly polarized into their own little custom realities. And we don't arrive at material consensus. Custom reality (laughs) in you. Available on Amazon. So after answering none of these questions and not really responding to Jay at all. In fact, she says, oh, yeah, you're right. And then just completely ignores it. Doctor? Well, <laughs> you're all right. Everybody gets an A+. Hey. Oh no. Hit the air horn. <laughs> but I think there's, you know, there's a couple of things going on here where engagements, on the one hand, we're talking about it as this interpersonal relationship Something where you're saying, you know, should I talk to my aunt who's like gone down this rabbit hole? That's really important. We just came out of four years of having one of the most divisive presidencies, political polarization moments in our history, not just because like Trump is who he is, but because everybody was called to atone. Everybody was called to say something. Everybody was called to have an opinion. John Stewart's last question is, what should we do? Here's the last question. We have a show. So what would you suggest for us to guard against even even accidental harm, but still maintain kind of like my belief in engagement, which I think, unfortunately, I'm going to end up having that forever. Yeah, I I think that's okay, And that's, you know, be an advocate for the truth. Mm -hmm. What brings us towards clarity is hearing from other people and understanding from other people, but don't get hoaxed going through the vetting process, you know, just do do that background research and always try to tell the impact story. And this is something that I tell journalists all the time, which is that platform the people who are harmed by this stuff, platform the people who don't have voices in the debate or that people who are struggling with how to understand uh, the world around them and, and what's going to matter. So, all right. We, we've we gone from Jon Stewart being a piece of shit for having that conversation and asking what is recommended, not saying it this way, but to arrive at a material reality when we're engaging with people who might not have the right appraisal of it. I think that he tried to come to some conclusion by finding a quote-unquote expert on the subject. And unfortunately, uh, Here's the thing about experts and authority. When you ask them 
is it not always good that we rely on experts and authority? They go, ah, no, no, that's good. Exactly. I, I think that is the conclusion we could take from that. Also, platform marginalized voices. Like, if you want to really talk about marginalized voices in this conversation, let's talk about how uh, most people with vaccine hesitant views are actually people of color. Black and brown bodies. More or less, I completely agree with uh, John Stewart here. We should engage with people. And in engaging, we have to learn about uh, where people are coming from, what they're actually talking about. Well, here's the implication of non-engagement. You will never organize your working class. That is what this is a further divisive tool. And while Joe Rogan is an owner, his listeners are not. Yes. And their opinions on this are critical to how we perceive our fellow worker. And it prevents any type of organization whatsoever. We will never organize through that lens, through a, a spirit of non-engagement. Yeah. Will never uh, if somebody's wrong, then you never talk to them. You never see them. You get rid of them. You make them go away. Keep the barbarians fighting. That's all you have to fucking say. That's yeah. that's this whole that's that's really issue. what it is. But anyway, in engagement, let's talk about who Joe Rogan is. The Daily New York Times podcast. Well, obviously, I have criticisms because it is the New York Times. We'll point out a couple of incorrect or perhaps badly framed things here. Somebody at the New York Times by the name of Kevin Roos actually uh, listens to Joe Rogan, which is, I mean, a bizarre contradiction. Somebody who works at the New York yeah, Times listens to Joe Rogan. I've been listening to Joe Rogan's podcast for a long time. It's one of the podcasts I listen to when I'm like cooking or folding laundry or like mm -hmm. doing chores around the house. And it's kind of perfect for that because it only requires about 40% of your attention. Hmm. And it also has nothing to do with my job, um, except I guess now that I'm talking to you about it. So they interviewed him to explain what's going on. And as a daily listener, obviously he had a little bit more sympathetic of a take. Fuck him. Yeah. What a bad man. So Joe Rogan, he doesn't really like have a typical resume for a guy who hosts a very popular interview show. And I think that actually has a lot to do with why people find him so authentic and approachable. Hmm. He grew up working class. As a teenager, he works on construction sites and does various other jobs. He actually gets really, really good at martial arts. Like when he's 19, he actually wins a national taekwondo championship. Hmm. But he decides that he doesn't want to be a professional martial artist. And so around the mid-1990s, he decides to try his hand at this other thing he likes, which is... For Mr. Joe Rogan, give him a hand. Stand-up comedy. And eventually he moves to L.A. to pursue comedy full-time. And then in the early 2000s, he gets this big break. I'm Joe Rogan. Welcome to Fear Factor. And then in 2003, he starts recording conversations that he has with other comedians, people in the MMA area, whether they be fighters or other commentators, and starts posting that online. Uh, after a little while, he starts streaming it on a site called Ustream, which is the equivalent of Twitch in 2003. Uh, wow. So an awful website that barely works, uh, for one. Yeah, it works like this. <laughs> Or he starts streaming live there, and then he starts posting the results on YouTube. Gets huge. And 
his audience, as it's really starting to explode, is largely men. And what does that seem to be about? Yeah, I mean, I think of Joe Rogan as kind of the patron saint of like a certain kind of American masculinity. I'm thinking about the guys I know who really listen to him a lot. These are guys who, you know, they're smart, they work hard, they come home to their families, they like to drink beer and watch sports or UFC on the weekends. They like telling a dirty joke now and then maybe. They're not people who are super political or plugged into Mm -hmm. the news, but they like hearing smart people talk about stuff that interests them. And Joe Rogan really is that guy, and he loves that guy. He just, like, talks to them without being condescending or assuming that something is going to be too intellectual for them Mm. or too out there for them. He just, like, treats these guys in his audience with respect. The key insight here is that whether something is conspiratorial or high-minded, intelligent, and difficult to understand, Joe Rogan is like, my audience can understand that. Let's talk about it. Yeah. He doesn't go, dialectics, who's going to understand that word? Right. Um, So anyway, they talk a little bit about the format. (laughs) I guess what might be most useful is to contrast it with what we're doing right now, like taping The Daily. (laughs) Um, You know, The Daily is a hyper-produced podcast. like Uh, Us? Us? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, reveal too much of what goes on behind the curtain, but, like, it's a pretty produced show. It's It is. Fair. Vetting and pre-interviews and fact-checking, and, like, after we finish talking right now, there's, like, a team of producers and editors who will, like, take these files and cut out all the boring parts and then, like, trim (laughs) it down into, like, a tight episode. Right. They said they don't want to reveal too much of what goes on behind the curtain, which is, like, Shut the fuck up. This is a fucking podcast. <laughs> you, you set up your shit and you say, okay, we're going to justify the ruling class ideology mostly. Maybe throw in some. Let Peter Goodman in the room for a little while to talk about material conditions, but not long enough for him. To uh, come to the correct conclusion. About yeah. Yeah. He's got to come up, come to those same class collaborative conclusions that we do. Otherwise, we're not letting him in. Yeah. Getting that cane, like the little shepherd. Thing yeah. 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 <laughs> Get the, the entertainer. Yeah, we do an edited podcast like we record this podcast live in front of a small audience. Point being, we edit our podcast. It's not a big deal. And yes, we do a little fact checking, by the way, like we'll say some stuff sometimes in in the live. We're like, go back and check that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is not like intense production as as this man is saying. We do vetting and pre-interviews and fact checking. It's like, well, that's not really a big deal. I'm being a little nitpicky here, but like, I think that it's funny that they're like, we don't want to pull back the curtain. So you know how to podcast. It's like, yeah. no, everybody knows how to podcast. Everyone knows you, how to You podcast. get in front of the microphone and you talk. Yes. But anyway, he says, the Joe Rogan experience is basically the polar opposite of that. Like <laughs> basically the polar opposite of our highly produced, slick, amazing show, which not everybody could do. We promise not everybody could do. It's... <laughs> For one, extremely long. Like most episodes are more than two hours long. Many are like three or four hours long. Mm. It is essentially unedited. There's no like post-production to speak of. It's just like what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. And it's very informal. It's spontaneous. And that spontaneity is what people 
like about it. Mm -hmm. It's what you imagine talking with your friends in your backyard over a bunch of beers would sound like. In in other words, the Joe Rogan experience is closer to a quote-unquote real conversation than most podcasts, including the one you're watching or listening to right now. I say, let the conversation begin. So if this is truly a conversation, then I say, let the conversation begin. Basically, if Joe Rogan has a manifesto, it's that these kinds of conversations are good and you need to keep learning and expanding your horizons. Which is a very positive message. And if you indulge that, you are going to come to incorrect conclusions sometimes. And you're also going to be talking to your fellow worker. Yeah. Not that Joe Rogan is encouraging that. But in a way, sort of is. He is by not discouraging it in the way that yes. everything else in the world yes. is discouraging it. Then he starts to basically say, well, that's that's both the strength and kind of the weakness. Because Joe Rogan has always been kind of a conspiracy theorist. Like, he had questions about 9-11, which everyone should. I mean, not questions about, like, if the towers went down or if the planes brought them down. But more like, um, why the fuck did we fund bin laden in the 1970s and uplift them uplift the mujahideen voices in rambo why do we do that that's a question to ask why did we why do we do that and make it possible for them to kill 3,000 people why do we do that i'd like you to take a look at some of these photos i don't know how much you know about afghanistan most people can't even find it on the map but over two million civilians mostly peasant farmers and their families have been systematically slaughtered by invading russian armies i guess i'm not ready yet well i gotta uh, move Something went wrong. What happened? Soviets intercepted the team just over the border. Can you get me in? Can't be done officially. Make it unofficial. Most of the Afghan people are very strong, and we are determined not to be driven from our land. By invading Russian armies. Our children die of disease, mines, and poison gas. And the women are raped and killed. By invading Russian armies. Pregnant women were kept with bayonets. By invading Russian armies. And their babies thrown into the fires. By invading Russian armies. Nobody sees anything or reads anything in the papers. What you see here are the Mujahideen soldiers. What we must do is to stop this killing of our women and children. By invading Russian armies. Soviets return to the free world and tell what happens here is necessary. Then of course we will help. I need to tell my story properly. Soviets. I need to tell my story properly. Quite good for a tourist. Were the Twin Towers real? Yeah, that's not the kinds of questions I would necessarily recommend. Were the Twin Towers real? I'd more... I'd more want to investigate the uh, conditions that led up to the event itself, which you'll find that U.S. imperialism really has an intense influence on. Okay, so Joe Rogan talks to people who have different ideas, and it's just like a chill conversation. There's some political incorrectness that that Joe Rogan is very particularly fond of expressing that he has. Maybe his biggest, most obvious view that he talks about all the time is that he is just proudly anti-political correctness. Like, he's opposed to, like, cancel culture and these things that he just sees as, like, liberal pieties. He just doesn't believe in them, and he thinks that people on the left are going overboard. And this really resonates with his audience, many of whom are kind of also sick of being told that they're the problem in some way. He's telling people, yeah, it's okay to be a man. It's okay to be a white man. It's okay to be a white man who loves to watch people beat each other up in a UFC (laughs) ring. And some of this might evoke 
kind of the modern sort of Trumpism to people who don't know him. Mm-hmm. But his politics are actually kind of squishy and confusing in a way that kind of makes him a singular figure. Explain that. So he's pro-gay marriage. He's pro-legalizing weed. He believes in climate change and worries about, you know, renewable energy. Like, I wouldn't say his show is apolitical. He has a political view, but it's Mm -hmm. not like a Republican show or a Democratic show. It's just kind of this Joe Rogan view of the world. The Daily here says uh, Joe Rogan is not a Republican show or a Democratic show. It's just this kind of Joe Rogan view of the world. And what I wrote a little note right there. It says it's called normal people. That's what normal people are. They're not Republicans. They're not Democrats. 46% of registered voters are independents, according to Gallup. Less than 30% of registered voters belong to either of the parties. Most people, they see the Republicans and they see the Democrats and they think, wow, that's horseshit. And that's the thing that people don't seem to understand. They think that people listen to Joe Rogan because he's some right-wing demagogue. Yeah, because he hates trans people. And and here's the thing. You make that view look correct when you're like, this bitch needs to get taken, fucking taken down now. Right, like it's it's like he's he's waxing on some truth that we yeah. don't want. No, no. if he says that, if he says that, people are gonna know. People are gonna know. No, that's exactly what it looks. That's like. what it sounds like. You can't do that again. You need to engage. And if you think that you don't have to, to repeat what Jay Jordan said, that's pretty fucking privileged thinking. Mm-hmm. And if you're trans and you're oppressed by this fucking world, and yes, you very much are, uh, you don't have that privilege. I don't, but let me tell you again, I'm a non-binary person. A lot of people get that wrong. You're a non-binary person. A lot of people get that shit wrong when they're addressing us, when they're talking to us. I don't give a shit. I'm not here to like tell somebody that they're evil for not knowing my innermost thoughts and feelings. Yeah. I'm okay with that. If they ask me about it, I'll have a conversation with them. And I, I'm sorry if, if people think like, no, they should just know because that's, that's reality. It's not. Reality is a commodity that is created by the ruling class. And that ruling class disseminates different realities to different people based on what is most beneficial for it. It's curated, yes. And uh, the point of my book, Custom Reality, is that they make it so that you feel like you're choosing your reality. Uh, You aren't. You're choosing from a predefined set of choices, and therefore they're the ones doing the real choosing. That's, That's my... The very dumbed down thesis from that book. Yeah, I know. I think that was a pretty good summary. Thank you. Given that, if you're a trans person or or a person of any other marginalized identity that you assume another person doesn't know everything about, I'm sorry. The only way around it, the only way that any any progress in your interpersonal relationships, not necessarily systemic progress, the only way that you get treated better by other people that are around you is by treating those people like people, talking to them, having conversation, explaining where you're coming from, and accepting where they're coming from. The ruling class ideology, or rather ideologies, are things that poison all of us. We all don't know everything, and we're all biased in some way. We have to accept that. And the only way around that is that engagement that John Stewart's talking about. Now, keeping in mind that engagement is not going to fundamentally change society so that uh, we can develop a, a system that is fair, equitable, driven by the intent to abolish class, 
that's not necessarily what's going to happen in terms of uh, what what engagement creates. Engagement is more like ground floor. Hey, we have to understand each other if we're ever going to try anything systemic. So now that we understand Rogan to some extent, we have to understand the real problem people are having with Rogan. And that is specifically, um, it seems to swirl around him having Dr. Uh, Robert Malone on late December of last year. Malone is an MD, PhD, which could you explain MD, PhD? If you have a PhD that that is a research degree wherein to obtain it, you specifically have to contribute something scientifically novel to your field. Okay. And he studied virology and mRNA as applicable to vaccines. And he was in a landmark study that did that. I don't know what his dissertation was on, but that's what that is. Your, your dissertation is your, your first novel contribution to the scientific literature. You have to do that to get a PhD. He did that while also becoming a medical doctor who is able to practice medicine. So an MD PhD is a pretty fucking intense degree to have. It is getting your MD and your PhD at the same time. Um, And his research was oriented towards scientific findings that were critical to vaccine development. Like you mentioned the landmark study he was involved in. It was a study that proved mRNA uh, interacted with, there was a couple of different stages of this. They did over a couple of years. Production of proteins using mRNA, it supported that strongly, did not. And, and without that, you're not going to have the COVID vaccines. Right. So, so this is a very smart guy who has said some very controversial stuff. Some of it questionable, some of it supported, frankly, like uh, side effects. Side effects exist. Off of which Joe Rogan um, may have overstated those conclusions um, and in the most uncharitable interpretations encouraged people to not get vaccinated. But that's not what happened. No. Uh, to sum up Rogan's actual statements, old people, sick people. Um, immunocompromised people should get vaccinated. Young people, it's not really that necessary for you to get vaccinated in Rogan's eye. That's what Joe Rogan said. We're not saying well, that's it. That's what I said in Rogan's eye. Yeah, we're. <laughs> that's how he sees it. If you're young and healthy, it's not necessary for you to get vaccinated. That is not anti vaccine. No. Do I agree with that? No, I am vaccinated. You're vaccinated. Extremely uncharitable to characterize as anti vaccine. Now, Robert Malone has some controversial opinions, uh, some you can refute, refute. Like, there are some where he's literally just asserting that side effects happen. He did it more dramatically than that. He said that ivermectin was uh, good. And, and which there, is, there are meta-analytic results that suggest that it can reduce COVID symptoms. But, like, that there are meta-analyses that show that it's not just fucking horse pills. Yeah. Horse paste. Well, you can buy it in CVS and tablet form. It's not just fucking horse paste. It treats other things. And and the creator of it won a Nobel Prize for those things. It is a human medication. Period. You can buy it at CVS. There is some supporting evidence to the idea that it could reduce COVID symptoms. Not cure COVID, not prevent COVID, but there is some evidence. Uh, you can look it up. These are peer-reviewed studies. And uh, the New York Times here 
actually acknowledges those studies and says that they are not necessarily, it says it has limited, limited usefulness on COVID, which is a very different position than the New York Times and basically every media entity took a few months ago. He gets really into this idea of ivermectin, which we've talked about on the show before, this mm -hmm. sort of anti-parasitic drug, limited usefulness on COVID, but useful in other contexts. Implying that as new information has come out, right. certain things are not necessarily outright evil to say. They're updates to the information because that's how fucking science works. Mainstream media doesn't accuse the CDC of spreading misinformation when things changed about how to address COVID. I have seen some mainstream media criticize the CDC in how they've disseminated information, but not that information changes. And and Kevin Rouse um, is sympathetic to that and, and describes this situation in that context. But the podcast introduces the idea of should Rogan kind of be doing things differently? Um, even though he, he's very clear about his positions um, mm -hmm. on these things, if, if this is possible as a lens to disseminate misinformation, should he be filtered in some way? Would you say that's an accurate conclusion? Yes, absolutely. And then also ends with the question of how much culpability does Spotify have? Again, is it Spotify? Is it Joe Rogan? We don't know, but we're going to individualize this to be about Joe Rogan. And that's the funny part of it. No one ever knows, but it's always Joe Rogan. Yeah. Dr. Donovan says, I don't know. Maybe we need to talk about platforms culpability. And even when, you know, John Stewart says they're starts talking about algorithms and who owns that and how that works, she returns it back to Joe Rogan being a problem. Yeah, and, and there's the strange situation, too, where, like, even if it does turn its attention to Spotify, it, it's not typically about things that Spotify needs to be held accountable for. Like, do I think Spotify should be slapped on the wrist for having Joe Rogan on it? No, I don't think that's Spotify's no. problem. People point out the labor dispute, like Dr. Donovan but only in the context of that being connected to this situation, which will die out later. My problem with Spotify is not that they have Joe Rogan on. My problem with Spotify is that they're a corporation. They privately held concentration of capital that dictates the terms of how an artist, a podcaster, or any personality interacts with an audience. Yeah. It's not who they have on their platform. It's not how much they pay. It's that they are an entity that gets to dictate those things. So we solved that entirely just there. So who's culpable? Who knows? It's Joe Rogan. It's not Spotify. It should be Spotify. Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Point is, Joe Rogan said the N word. <laughs> okay, that was good. That's, that's how a lot of people are now framing it. Since the arguments have panned out and a lot of people have been like, actually, you know, I kind of agree with Jon Stewart here, even though you're calling him evil. I don't really think that it's bad that he's saying we should engage. Let's maybe just move on and think about something that's important in my life, like my rent or my groceries. Uh, the fact that gasoline and groceries are going way up in price. Inflation is out of control. No, 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 no. Joe Rogan said the N word. According to John Blake of CNN, Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is another January 6th moment. Completely inconsequential. That is not John Blake's conclusion. No, no. That yeah. is the correct conclusion, though. No. Or not completely, but God, I have to qualify everything because fucking losers. 
It, they had some effects, but they were not to the extent that liberals say. This whole thing it is about Joe Rogan saying the N-word a lot of times, which he did. And he, he did apologize for that um, in a way that deemed that morally reprehensible and yeah. awful. And appropriately so. To be frank, his apology for saying the N-word was perhaps one of the better apologies I've seen. On this kind for, of thing. For somebody who is apologizing for something they said. Yeah. Uh, he says a lot of these things were taken out of context. A lot of these things were me quoting someone else or talking about the word in its context. But that doesn't make it acceptable. Right. Yeah. So, so he... It's a pretty sincere apology. But this whole article is about how those instances reflect a cultural paradigm shift in which it's suddenly okay to say the N-word. And before, it was this completely taboo thing that never happened. Yeah, Joe Rogan Joe Rogan opened the floodgates and now all For white people all, saying the N-word. All whites are saying the N-word now. All of us. You can see in evidence as we are saying it right now. There's a section of this article called The Line That No White Person Once Dared Cross. Yeah. Did they forget about the entire rest of history? American history, yeah. John Blake implies that briefly following World War II and in the 1950s, that's when mainstream America started to pick up on the idea that saying the N-word was intolerable. You know, before civil rights. Pre-civil rights movement. That was when the entire mainstream, which, by the way, uh, what civil rights was working against the current of, the current of the mainstream, uh, somehow, 10 years plus before the civil rights movement, that was when uh, the mainstream decided not to say the N-word anymore. Yeah, he starts talking about in 2018, like Roseanne and other comedians and Paula Dean and Michael Richards. Yeah. Kramer saying that uh, white people used to pay a price for this. And Joe Rogan is the first person to not experience consequences from that. And now we shall no longer have our multicultural democracy. Thanks to this. Yeah. Which, by the way, just so you're aware. Um, we don't have a democracy right now. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to pop that bubble for you, but, uh, yeah, investigate that a little bit. Yeah. I, World War Two uh, brought an awareness of racism as America's new leader of the free ro- world. Um, so people start thinking that it's bad to stay at least explicitly be racist and then the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the eruption of race riots after Martin Luther King's assassination specifically is what made it bad to say the N-word. I think it's very strange that uh, America becoming the imperial superpower is what stopped the N-word. Yeah. Isn't uh, that a little weird? We could do a full episode on that. I, yeah, I mean- that <laughs> sentence alone. <laughs> yeah. So the the thesis here is that in the past few years, we've become desensitized to hate speech. Yeah. Why is that? Social media, the growth of white supremacist groups, right-wing media ecosystems, Trump, 
all of these factors converged to create a chain effect that led to what one scholar calls defining deviance down. This is what happens when a country starts accepting offensive language it rejected before. This man ends up quoting a speech from Ronald Reagan. I'm just going to read verbatim here. The universal condemnation that used to greet white people who publicly use the N-word, which, by the way, let's just let's just take a second to breathe on that one. Like now that Joe Rogan has said it, white people don't get in trouble at all for saying the N-word anymore. And also it it will likely uh, promote white people's careers. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, because they become uh, anti-cancel culture heroes. I don't think that would happen if you did that. I did say it a lot in this book, to be fair. Like, there's a lot. I encourage everyone to purchase this book to count how many times I say the N-word in it. Cancel culture, mob justice, or a society of subscriptions. I say the N-word 63 times in it. You can't tell them the number, then they're not going to want to buy it. Oh, that's right. I say the N-word. I don't know how many times in it. (laughs) You'll have to see. Uh, for the sake of my Twitter feed, uh, not once has no, Peter no. ever said the N-word. I've never said the N-word, even like in private. I have no intention of ever saying the N-word. You say it like that's some kind of like crazy thing. Of course. There are people in the world who think that it's different to say in private. If there was a black person who said, you know, I'm comfortable with you saying it. I'd be like, that's good. Fine. Cool. I'm not gonna. (laughs) The universal condemnation that used to greet white people who publicly use the N-word was part of a civic norm that made a multiracial democracy possible. The word was a vestige of a hateful Jim Crow era that most Americans agreed to leave in the past. It was considered un-American. This is the America that former President Ronald Reagan evoked in his famous Shining City on a Hill 1989 farewell address. He described us as a nation teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace with doors open to anyone with the will and heart to get there. Now, behind closed doors, Ronald Reagan, on the other hand. On the heels of President Trump using disparaging imagery to describe African nations, new tapes have just been released by the National Archives that reveal similar language used by the late President Ronald Reagan. So let me take you back to 1971, and it was Reagan, who was, by the way, the governor of California at the time, was on the phone with then-President Richard Nixon. And so during this conversation, Reagan referred to leaders of African nations as, quote, monkeys. And then President Nixon gets in his own dig. Here you go. And last night, I tell you, to watch that thing on television, I, I did. Yeah. To see those, those monkeys from those African countries. <laughs> Damn them, they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. <laughs> Well, and then they, the tail wags the dog there, doesn't it? Yeah. The tail wags the dog. Yeah, they, they could have picked anybody else. Yeah. Oh, they I don't know. They could have picked the black president. I, I don't I, I don't know. Like, you could, yeah, exactly. have picked Barack Obama. To be honest, he has probably said the N-word. <laughs> no, there's actually a recording of him saying it. I've heard him say it. That's still part of our DNA. That's passed on. Uh, it, we're not cured of it. Racism. Racism. 
we are not cured of. Clearly. Uh, and it's not just a matter of uh, it not being polite to say in public. That's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. Anyway, why shrugging off the N-word is so dangerous. I, I want to specifically say this exact sentence. Rogan's use of the N-word may also be drawing us closer to something else, destroying any plausible shot at building a genuine multiracial democracy. The January 6th insurrection was so dangerous because it violated a political norm. The citizens in a healthy democracy are supposed to accept the peaceful transfer of power, not to use violence as a tool of political protest. That's what most Americans agreed to leave behind after we fought a bloody civil war over a political and moral issue, slavery. There's so much fucking going on in there. You know the funny thing about the Civil War? The thing that ended um, Chattel slavery? Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Civil War was kind of a violation of that exact fucking norm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, while I'm not saying that Joe Rogan's saying the N-word uh, or January 6th, which, by the way, wasn't nearly as violent as the Civil well, yeah, War. yeah, and the people who did January 6th were the ones that got killed. But anyway... Uh, I'm not saying that that resulted in the progression of society or that they had a noble cause, but I am saying that that norm, I'm sorry, but like it's in the way of a lot of good things too. Not to say that the January 6th people were right with what they did. They were stupid idiots. No, and, and they were stupid idiots led by a bunch of right-wing billionaires and their dumb NPOs to do stupid shit. They were bussed into Washington, D.C. by some NPOs Nobody had a plan. They just were pissed off. And uh, they went and shit in Nancy's Pelosi's drawers. Who gives a shit? That's that's how we like to describe January 6th. But, but the violence. Like, what fucking violence? Are you talking about the woman who was... The a, unarmed woman who the, was shot and killed. Yeah. Who was shot at point-blank range in the fucking neck? Maybe that woman? The police officer that died, died of a stroke, which he had at 10 p.m. in his home. Okay, anyway, we're a different country because Joe Rogan said the N-word now. Uh, this article fucking says that. To ensure survival of the chance of a multiracial democracy. And then Joe Rogan on his podcast single-handedly. They also mystify the N-word in a way that is very strange. Like in a way that it's more important than the things that it symbolizes. They they put so much emphasis on this rather than, like, they do mention the historical events of chattel slavery and Jim Crow era, mm -hmm. but they say nothing about, like, how black people are disproportionately impacted by material circumstances. It's just about this mystical, magical N-word. Here's the other thing. It's not that Joe Rogan said the N-word a bunch of times over the course of years. It's actually that somebody made a compilation of it to try to cancel him with. Because if they hadn't have done that, would you know about it? Yeah. Would I know about it? Would it have affected the cultural zeitgeist? No. The actual reason that any of us are talking about him saying the N-word, I'm sure he fucking forgot about it. But the way he was acting, he was like, I saw this thing and I was not proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we how do we land this thing? First this off. is an extremely convenient issue to divide the working class. Well, yeah. Why do we think that this has been talked about for as many weeks as it has? 
to me, when, when I'm looking at this, when I'm saying like, what is the reason that this matters so much in the world for, uh, yes, it's about dividing the working class, but it's exonerating responsibility from corporate power and training people to think, uh, a of somebody with the amount of wealth and relation to means of production as Joe Rogan, you look at them like any other person. Like Joe Rogan, I, I would say probably petty bourgeoisie. Yeah. He's supposed to look like any other person to you. Whether that benefits regular people or it benefits the bourgeoisie, you're supposed to see him as uh, any other person. Well, right. And, in and, that, and the way that that person is defined depends on what side somebody is arguing about this particular issue. Well, yeah. That's, that's really the convenient thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you accept this paradigm that they've proposed around him, you're not talking about him yeah. as though he's bourgeoisie. You're talking about him as though he is either a Republican or a Democrat. You're not talking about him in terms of class, even if you understand that he is economically different from you. Uh, in, in many ways, it's not just that they're dividing the working class. They're also mystifying class relations as a whole by making you argue either for or against this person as if he is exactly the same as you. Mm-hmm. And he's not. We aren't here to defend him from his class position. We're here to say, yeah, a lot of working class people listen to Joe Rogan. And it's probably because he comes from the working class. He, for all intents and purposes, hasn't forgotten where he came from. I know a lot of people use that phrase stupidly. But when when somebody becomes petite bourgeoisie and somebody else says, hey, don't forget where you came from. What they mean is you're from the working class. Don't fuck us. We're incentivized to view individuals with varying views on the topic as essentially evil and bad and unable to be collaborated with. Absolutely. Which is the listeners of Joe Rogan, not right. And that is that is con- condemnation to capitalist class society. Yeah, that's it. And that's it for Pact. Thanks again for watching or listening. I'm Peter. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. To help us out, click like, follow, subscribe, join our Discord, leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To support us, become a patron at patreon.com slash packpod. That's P-A-C-D-P-O-D. Thanks so much. Come back next week.